0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Let me ask a question tonight. What's the longest you've had to wait in line or the longest you've had to wait to get into a restaurant? And what's your threshold like what's the t- like if it's at a certain amount of time you're like I'm not gonna do it so when we were um, when, when the boys were younger since Don's parents live in Denver every Christmas time it was a family tradition to go to the old spaghetti factory downtown Denver because it was all decorated then we'd go over to um, downtown and look at the lights and so but because we have a special needs child with Zachary We had to, it was kind of dicey, like on how long we're going to have to wait. And so one time we got there and Aiden was probably seven, Zachary was probably four or five, and I think it was almost a two-hour wait and it was not fun (laughs) waiting two hours. But we we had already made the plans to be there and so nowadays if we go to a restaurant and it's more than like 20 minutes, it's like, uh, that's, that's too long. So I don't know how long you guys would wait, but um, speaking of waiting, you may not know this, but what is the most significant play of the 20th century? I don't know if you guys are big people that go to theater, um, but it was first performed in Paris in 1953. It was written by the Irish playwright Samuel Beckett, and here's what the play is. the, The play is called Waiting for Godot, if you've ever heard of that, Waiting for Godot. It's a story about two men who wait endlessly for this man, Godot, to show up, and he never shows up. And the entire play is them waiting and waiting, and he never shows up. Now, it's a metaphor for this type of philosophy that was big in the 20th century called existentialism, which basically says life is meaningless. So this play was basically... One long, meaningless play about people waiting for a guy to show up that never showed up. I don't know about you, but do you want to go watch a play where people are waiting for a guy to never show up, and it's a play about waiting for somebody to show up? Who likes to wait? We have to wait in line at Walmart. You have to wait in line at Subway. Kids have to wait in line at school. You have to wait in line all the time. And so why do I bring up the issue of waiting, waiting, waiting? Why do I bring that up tonight? Well, last week, we began the second half of the book of Daniel. And I talked to some of you, I think, Larry, I talked to you, I was like, the first, for the first six chapters were intriguing and a little easier to understand, but here we get into what we call apocalyptic literature. Uh, We have these gruesome beasts, we have these visions, we have these dreams, we have issues related to the end of the age. Last week, we talked about the little horn that was representative of the Antichrist that would come... During the end times. And so, chapter 7 that we looked at last week talks about persecution and what's going to happen at the end of the age when the beast or this Antichrist figure wages war on God's people. And so tonight we're going to talk about the end times. I thought it would be interesting to talk about the end times because everybody seems to be talking about the end times with everything that's going on right now. But before we do that, there are two extremes when it comes to talking about the end times. One extreme, that's all people talk about Bible prophecy. They don't talk about anything else. It's Everything's Bible prophecy. Everything's end times. They're enamored by prophecy conferences and the, the latest and greatest books and televangelists and YouTube clips and podcasts. And they, they live panicked and they're always looking for the signs of the times and, and they're consumed by the end times to make sure that they understand all the intricacies. And so they're really kind of in a posture of fear and nervousness. And there's kind of this, like... I don't want to say obsession with the end times. That's one extreme. Okay. The other extreme, conversely, some people don't even think about it. They don't live with an urgency. They don't watch and wait for Christ's return. They pretty much live however they want to live. They act as if Christ isn't coming back. He's not going to judge the living and the dead. They're often like those that Peter tells us about in 2 Peter chapter 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Where is Jesus? Has not come back yet? What's all this stuff about end times? Scoffing. So those are two extremes. We don't want to be any one of those extremes. We don't want to be like so obsessed with the end times that that's all we talk about. And we don't want to neglect the second coming and just kind of say that it's not going to happen or we don't need to worry about it or kind of get lulled into sleep, not watching and waiting for Christ's return. So here's the big question for tonight. The big question is this. While we are living in the tension between right now and the second coming of Christ, here's the question. How do you and I persevere in obedience while waiting for Christ's return? How do we persevere in obedience? Anybody here know when Jesus is going to come back? It's sooner today than it was yesterday, (laughs) okay? So we are called to watch and be ready And we need to be ready and we need to persevere because I don't know about you guys, but things right now in the world, there seems to be a little bit of unsettledness in people's hearts and minds. And there's just kind of, I think ever since COVID, there's kind of been like this tension, this like, can we catch a breath with all the stuff that's going on in the world? And so we have to ask the question, how are we going to persevere? So last week, It was kind of this macro level, looking at these nations that are coming upon the scenes, looking at this end times antichrist. And so, for most of us, we're not going to experience extreme persecution yet. Now, we may have degrees of persecution here in America or suffering, health issues, job issues, but there is the day to day life grind of being a Christian in this world that can be difficult. It can wear you down. It can get you discouraged. And so we can get impatient, we can get stressed out, we can get worried, we can get panicked, or we can get lazy and we can fall asleep. And neither one of those are the answers as we wait for Christ's return. So, we are called to persevere in obedience as we wait. And like I said, nobody likes waiting. But we have to wait for Christ's return. So, We come to Daniel chapter 8, and we are given a very specific vision of something that literally happened in history about 400 years after Daniel's death. So what we're going to see here in Daniel chapter 8 was literally fulfilled in history 400 years later, which is kind of cool. And so this chapter fits nicely into three parts. You've got The ram in its interpretation you got the goat in its interpretation and you got the little horn in its interpretation so ram goat, little horn okay so what in the world are these so I'm gonna give you a lot of information here about chapter 1 and I don't don't want this just to kind of be this can be like oh this is very interesting and it's cool how all this stuff works together history and that's good but I don't want us to lose the forest for the trees I want us to look at the passage I want us to see the historical reality of what happened. But then, most importantly, the second half of the teaching tonight, I'm going to draw out the theological and the practical implications of how it applies to us. Okay? So, let's first read about the ram and its interpretation in the first four verses. So let's read together Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up at last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Okay. Last week in chapter seven, there were gruesome beasts that were kind of like gruesome and animalistic and very gross. This is just more of a domesticated, not a domesticated, but, but an animal, a ram. A ram has two horns powerful. It charges north, south, east, and west. And later on in this chapter, we're going to find out the identity of the ram, okay? The ram is the Medo-Persian empire. Now, how do we know that? Well, from historical evidence, we know that when Persian kings marched into battle, they would carry the golden head of a ram as their symbol of victory. What do we also know from history? What happened when King Belshazzar saw the writing on the wall? That very night, what happened in history? The Persian king came in and conquered Babylon. So this is the ram, the Persian empire, the Persian king coming in. Now, this ram doesn't last forever. It basically comes on the scene, does as he pleases, but we know from history that there's another nation that came after the Medo-Persian Empire. What was the nation that came after the Medo-Persian Empire? Rome. Right? Before Rome. Greece. 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 Okay, so the goat is next. The ram, the first thing Daniel sees is the Medo-Persian Empire that came literally in history and defeated Babylon. But then the nation that came after the Medo-Persian Empire was the GOAT. Now, we know from history, again, that Alexander the Great was one of the most powerful generals ever to live and led Greece to become the next world power. And so he is personified as the GOAT, all right? Not the greatest of all time, but the the GOAT. (laughs) Maybe in his eyes, he was the GOAT metaphorically so let's keep reading verses five through eight as i was considering behold a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground and the the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes he came to the ram with the two horns which i had seen standing on the bank of the canal and he ran at him in powerful wrath I saw him come close to the ram and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns and the ram had no power to stand before him but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great but when he was strong, the great horn was broken and instead of up, instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Now, this may be a little bit more... Um, normal of what daniel may have seen in nature versus the gruesome beasts you've got a goat and a ram button heads and the goat comes in and destroys the ram so alexander the great greece comes in and destroys the medo-persian empire okay so at that time when alexander the great was leading the world through greece the greek empire stretched out 1.5 million square miles It was huge. Now, in 323 BC, after a severe bout with malaria and a heavy fever, Alexander the Great died at the age of 32. So he died young. But he was a great historical figure. But he's only mentioned here in passing. So he's not as great as he thought he was. But what I want you to notice from verse 8. What happens from verse 8? The great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Okay, this is very, very important. Daniel sees something in a vision that literally comes true in history. Here's what happened after Alexander the Great died. After Alexander the Great died, this is a historical accuracy. Because after the death of Alexander the Great, the nation was divided into four parts with four different generals or rulers. Now, from these four rulers that emerge out of the Greek Empire, one would be the epitome of evil for the Israelite people. And that's the next person we see is the little horn. So, there's a difference between the little horn we see here and the little horn we saw last week. They're not the same little horns. Okay, let, me, let me explain that. Last week, from chapter 7, the little horn would emerge from the fourth empire, the Roman Empire. So the little horn that, David, that Daniel saw in his first vision was a, a personification of the end times Antichrist. In Daniel chapter 8... The little horn is actually a little per- literal person that came on the scene in history and did some things historically out of the Greek nation. Those four nations that emerged when Alexander the Great died. So here in chapter 8, the little horn is different than what we saw last week. Okay? So, the identity of the little horn in chapter 7 that we saw last week is somewhat ambiguous and refers to the end times The literal, the the, the, the little horn in chapter eight is a literal historical person who did some outrageous things against God's people, okay? So let's keep reading. Verse nine, out of them, so those four horns or those four nations came the little horn, we're in verse nine, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east and toward the glorious land. And it grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars were threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great even as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgressions, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering the transgression that makes desolate? And then giving over the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Okay, what's going on here? There is no scholarly debate. Almost every single commentary Bible scholar you will read identifies the little horn as none other than the wicked ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, he gave himself the nickname Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God made manifest, or more literally, look at me, I'm God. That's what he named himself. Antiochus, look at me, I'm God. He gave himself that nickname. Okay, so that is typical of an Antichrist type figure. Okay, But I want you to notice something that happened there in verse 9. Out of them came the little horn, literally Antiochus Epiphanus, a, a general, a military leader, grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Some translations say the beautiful land. That's a metaphor for what? Israel. 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 This ruler will rule with an iron fist, especially against the nation of Israel. So let's ask the question, in history, what did Antiochus Epiphanes do to the Jewish people in history that was so wickedly outrageous? So in verses 10 through 13, we find some descriptions of what he will do. It talks (coughs) about him coming and taking away the burnt offerings in the sanctuary. So he's gonna be doing something in the temple. He's gonna be coming and doing something to the temple in Jerusalem and messing with the sacrificial system and basically messing with the worship in Israel, okay? So let's talk about what he did during his reign, okay? So literally, in history, this is what happened. So Daniel sees the vision, it literally, so this is something that we don't have to wait for a future fulfillment. This was fulfilled in history about 400 years after Daniel saw the vision. So, in 170 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes began an intense persecution of the Jews and he started this by assassinating the high priest, Onius III. He assassinated the high priest, the one that did the sacrificial system in the temple, assassinated him. Okay? Also, during his reign... He executed thousands of Jews who resisted his unjust government. He marched in and plundered the temple in Jerusalem, stealing all of the treasures, furniture, and gold in the temple. And as his soldiers marched into Jerusalem, he slaughtered 80,000 men, women, boys, and girls, and even infants. Sounds familiar from things we've been seeing recently, have we not? With what Hamas has done? I'm not making, I'm not saying, I mean, I'm just saying it's very interesting what Antiochus Epiphanes did in 170 BC. He also tore up and burned copies of the scriptures. He took the scrolls and he would burn the Bible, if you will, publicly. And then in the ultimate act of treachery in 167 BC, he committed the ultimate act of treachery. He built a statue to Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem and offered a pig as a sacrifice on the altar. Now that's that—that's the grossest thing you can do in God's temple because a pig was an unclean animal. Zeus is a false god. And so not only did he just murder 80,000 people, but he goes into the temple where God's dwelling place is, slaughters a pig and basically desecrates God's house. So he was a tyrant. I guess you could call him one of the first anti Semitic leaders as a prototype to Hitler or to Stalin that we see in the 20th century or to what we see in Hamas today of an anti Semitical. Tyrant who wants to destroy the Jewish people. So he is a picture. He's a literal man in history, but he's a he's a picture of the Antichrist. Remember, many Antichrists have come against God's people. There'll be a future end times Antichrist. Verse John 2, 18 says, "Children, it's the last hour." As you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. So. Throughout history, there will always be antichrists that come against God's people, leading up to the ultimate end times antichrist. So, the little horn in chapter 7 is the end times antichrist. The little horn here in chapter 8 is the literal man, Antiochus Epiphanes, that did these atrocious things in history, in Israel, in the temple. Now, look at verse 14. How long is his reign going to be? 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, there's a lot of debate here, but how, break that down into years. Does anybody know how many years that is? That's three and a half years. It's going to be an intense persecution of three and a half years. And literally, that's how long the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes was, was three and a half years. Now, this becomes important in the Jewish mindset. Because in Jewish history, from that point forward, the number three and a half years would be a symbol for persecution and violence. Okay. So let me ask you a question. To an American, when we say 9-11, what, do I, what, what, what does that mean? Is that just a date on a calendar? No. The numbers 9-11 mean what? A day of terror in our nation when it was attacked and the Twin Towers fell and the Pentagon was attacked. Those numbers, 9-11, have a national conscience in our mind and everybody knows that that's a symbol of terrorism. Three and a half years is the same thing to the Jewish person. When they heard the term three and a half years, they would automatically think that's a period of an intense persecution when Antiochus Epiphanes came in and did these desecrating things, these terrible things to us as Jewish people, slaughtered 80,000 of us. And so in the Jewish mind, three and a half years is a symbol of persecution. That's helpful when you go to the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation is going to talk about three and a half years and it ties back to this in understanding in the Jewish mind that's symbolic of a period of 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 persecution. Okay, now, that's the dreams. Now we have the interpretation of the dreams. So so what have we seen so far? You've got the ram, the Medo-Persian Empire. You've got the goat... Alexander the Great, that comes on the scene. He dies, and the Greek empire is broken up into four smaller empires. Out of one of those comes the little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, who literally did these atrocious things 400 years later. okay. But now we're going to have an angelic interpretation. So let's keep reading. Verse 15. When I, Daniel had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Okay, so I told you that's what it meant, but here's where it says it. 21, And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not only by his own power, he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that have been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Okay, who interprets the vision for Daniel? The angel, Gabriel. Where else does Gabriel show up? He appeared to Zechariah, and he appeared to John Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, and he appeared to Mary. There's only two angels in the Bible that have names. Gabriel and Michael. The archangel. Now, We understand, we need to understand something here. Verse 17 may be a little bit confusing. Because what does he say? So he came near where I stood, this is Gabriel, and when he came I was right and fell on my face, but he said to me, understand, O son of man, the vision is for the time of the end. Okay, we need to be careful there. The time of the end. That does not necessarily mean the time of the end like we would think of, like the ultimate end. Because what he's referring to here is something that happened literally in history. It's the time of the end of when God ordained Antiochus Epiphanes to do his stuff. So in the context of chapter 8, right here, oops, let's go back. In the context of chapter 8, since it refers specifically to Greece and the reign of Antiochus, The time and the end should be taken as the end of the events prophesied right here. The persecution of the Jews and then the revolt led by a man named Maccabeus. Okay? So this is not necessarily... Chapter 8 is not talking about the end times, end times, end times. Chapter 8 is talking about what happened 400 years later, literally in history, with a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, because there's the specifics here. There's the Medo-Persian Empire. There's the Greek Empire. We, know, we can look back at history and say, okay, this, this has already been fulfilled. This is a prophetic, it's a prophetic event that Daniel saw that's already been fulfilled in history. Okay?
1: Now, what do we learn
0: about Antiochus Epiphanes? How is he characterized? Look at verse 23. How, how, how is he characterized? At the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of boldface, one who understands riddles, shall arrive. A king of boldface. Now, a king of boldface understands riddles. What's this all about? The word boldface means he will be harsh. Anyone that gets in his way, he will ruthlessly kill. Remember, he killed 80,000 people, even infants. Now, I don't know if anybody has understands riddles. Does anybody have a different translation in their Bible besides understands riddles in verse twenty three? If you go back and look at the Hebrew, it really means a master of intrigue. He's yeah. going to be a treacherous schemer. What does yours use? What does your say? It says a master of intrigue will rise. A master. So your translation says a master of intrigue. Okay, that's literally what the word means: a master of intrigue, or a political genius. A calculating man. Okay. And then in verse 25, what do we see there? He's going to have cunning. He'll be deceitful. He's going to be great in his own mind. And he's going to come and he's going to rule with great cunning. And then at the end of verse 25, what does he do? With that warning, he shall destroy many, and he will even try to rise up against the prince of princes. What's he going to try to do? He's going to try to exalt himself as the greatest of all times. Remember, what's his nickname? What's Epiphanes mean? Look at me, I'm God. Antiochus, look at me, I'm God. And if I think I'm God, I'm going to go against God and act like God and do the most desecrated thing I can think I can do. I'm going to go into God's house, and I'm going to bring Zeus in there, And I'm going to sacrifice a pig on the altar because I can do whatever I want. And he does this by cunning and deception. Cunning and deceit. Who's the first person in the Bible to use cunning and deceit? shows up in the third chapter of the Bible. The slithering serpent named Satan. What did Satan say in Genesis 3-5? told Eve, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from me. That's what Satan tempted Eve with, you can be like God. Now, he would rise against God himself, the prince of princes. He wants to put himself in the place of God. That's why he goes into the temple of God and does all these desecrating things. But then, look at the end of verse 25. He shall be broken, but not by human hand. Now what does that mean? He shall be broken or come to his death, not by human hand. And so most scholars believe what he's saying there is, he's not going to be killed in battle or he's not going to be assassinated. It won't be another human being, another human's hand that's going to kill him, either by sword on the battlefield or by assassination. So how did Antiochus Epiphanes die? Well, he died of grief and remorse in 163 BC after being routed by a group of Jews who led a revolt. So he, he was broken, he died, but he didn't die by assassination, he didn't die on the battlefield, he died basically of remorse and grief and just kind of depression at the end of his because he, he, he got conquered. If you think you're God and you get conquered, then you're no longer, quote-unquote, God in your own eyes. You get depressed and you die, and that's what happened. So, Antiochus Epiphanes was a literal man in history who did terrible things to the Jews. But, at the same time, I also think he's a prototype or a picture of what the end-times Antichrist will look like. So, Antioch Epiphanes is a prototype or a picture in literal history of what something even on a greater scale is going to happen at the end so that's the text okay let's go home now that makes a lot of sense no we're not going to go home we're going to look at some parallels let's look at some parallels between what this man did in history and what we might face today as we wait for Christ's return. Let's just look at the parallels. What did Antiochus Epiphanes do 400 years after Daniel sees this vision, 130 so years before Christ, and how are they parallel to what we might face today? So let's just think of the first thing here. One thing we need to understand before we do this is to see that Satan is behind all of this. Now, in Daniel 8, does it come right out and say Satan's behind all of this? No, it doesn't. But from your understanding of the Bible, what do you know about Satan from Genesis to Revelation? In Genesis, he's called a serpent. Okay, the word Satan means adversary. The word devil means accuser. Jesus calls him the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. He's the God of this age. Revelation 12 calls him the great red dragon. And so Peter, what does Peter call him? In 1 Peter 5 be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So Antiochus Epiphanes is a picture of spiritual warfare in his day against the Israelite people. And you have to say, whether it comes out explicitly, what he did, whether he was directly demon-possessed, we don't know, but you can say what he did was demonic. To go in and kill 80,000 Jews, to desecrate the Bible, to go and slaughter a pig and bring Zeus into the temple, that's demonic. That is evil. And I would be so bold as to say what we saw happen a few weeks ago when Hamas came in and did those things are demonically evil. We need to call evil for what it is. What they did was evil. And I'm not saying that those soldiers that flew in and paraglided were possessed by Satan, but what I'm saying is any type of major evil that you see in the world. Whether indirectly or directly, Satan is somehow behind it, influencing it, and it's a spiritual battle. Now, what does Antiochus Epiphanes do? Where does he go first? What's, what's, his, what's, his, what's, what's he wanting to destroy? He wants to destroy what was the most sacred thing to the Jewish people, the sacrificial system. Now, this is before Christ came. So what was the most important thing of the Jewish people at that time in history? The temple, the sacrificial system, the fact that they would bring goats and bulls and they would sacrifice on the day of atonement for the sins of the people. So the sacrificial system of sacrificing bulls and goats to forgive the sins of the people, Antiochus Epiphanes goes straight to the sacrificial system and says, "I'm, I'm attacking that first. We're wiping that out. Okay? What does Satan do today? We don't have the Old Testament sacrificial system because Jesus has come and he's the ultimate sacrifice, but in the same way, what's the parallel today? The devil will try to distract us from the sufficiency of the cross and our need for a substitutionary atonement through Jesus. What's the primary way Satan... What's Satan going to attack most today? The gospel. He does not want people to understand their need for a savior The old rugged cross the death of Christ the resurrection of Christ everything related to a personal relationship with Christ that's where that's where the devil's gonna go straight to that's where Antiochus Epiphanes went straight he went straight to the sacrificial system to destroy it what's the devil doing today I want if I can destroy the gospel everything else will be a piece of cake metaphorically speaking so how do you practically fight this spiritual Warfare that comes against the gospel You've got to stay focused on the cross Let me ask you a question This is kind of an interesting question And I don't know if you've ever been asked this before but if you had to choose between two Things to study for the rest of your life and these are the only two things you could study Would you rather study the end times or would you rather study the cross? The cross. Okay? But sadly a lot of people would say, Well, I want to study the end times. Well, it doesn't make any sense if it doesn't t- it's not tied to the cross. We've got to get our eyes always back to Jesus and the cross and the gospel and the power of the cross. Whenever things go sideways when we start messing with the gospel. And that's what's happening in our culture today. Satan is wanting to distort, destroy the gospel. So just like Antiochus Epiphanes went to the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, the devil's going to go to the sacrifice of Christ for us today and try to attack the sufficiency of Christ in his gospel. Okay, the second thing, what did Antiochus Epiphanes do? Well, he destroyed the temple. What was the temple back in that day? Not only was it the sacrificial system, but it was the symbol of God's presence. He dwelt in the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. Now, we have no physical temple today, but yes, we do, spiritually. The Bible says we are the temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, Christ is the ultimate temple, and we're tied to Him. And so, we don't have a physical temple today, but the devil is going to try to destroy the church, God's temple. So the devil wants to destroy the gospel and the devil wants to destroy the church, God's people. He wants to destroy the message and he wants to destroy the messengers. Because if he can get the message messed up, it won't get out. And if he can mess with the messengers, it won't get out. Okay? So there have always been two tactics of attack with the way the devil attacks the church. This has always been the case. There's two ways he does it. And it's different depending on where you live and what culture you live and what time period you live, but these are the two primary ways. Here's the first. Outside pressure in the form of persecution. So here's a picture of the church right here. So let me draw up here on the board. Hopefully we have a marker that works today. So here's, let's just put it this way. Here's God's people, the church. So one of the ways that the devil is going to try to come is through outside pressure or outside persecution. It's going to come from outside. It's going to come from other people. People outside the church, whether that's governments, whether that's big tech, whether that's whatever, okay, there's going to be persecution. Second Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not may be persecuted, will be persecuted. So there's always going to be outside pressure to bear on the church. Now, in America, it may not be as extreme as other places in the world, but there's always going to be forces outside of God's people coming from the outside to try to pressure them in the form of persecution, in the form of hostility, in the form of marginalization, all of that type of stuff coming from the outside to the church. But there's a second form of attack. What do you think the second form of attack is? Inside. Inward pressure from false doctrine and heresy. So, within the church, there's going to be heresy and false teaching. This isn't coming from outside. This is coming from inside. People that are already identifying as God's people. So you have two. You have a. You have almost a united front coming on both ends. You got pressure and persecution coming from the world outside, and you got false doctrines and false teachings coming from inside, and both of them are bringing pressure upon God's people to destroy them, and Satan's behind all that. So, what do we deal with false doctrine? Well, Jude, verse three says, "Beloved, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write, appealing to you." To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What does it mean to contend for the faith? Contend. Fight. Defend. The faith. Not a faith. The faith. Once for all delivered to the saints. So there is the scriptures, the the inerrant body of faith that we have in the holy scriptures, that we are to defend as God's truth. We don't fight other people. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and principalities, but we are to fight for faith. 2 Corinthians 11, 13-14. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for even Satan, himself, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Have you ever wondered if you were to typecast Satan in a movie, What would you make him look like? We often think of this ghoulish man with pitchfork and, you know, horns and all dressed in red. Actually, if you were to typecast Satan, he'd probably be the most well-dressed, articulate-speaking, charismatic, good-looking guy that walked into the room. They could sweet-talk everybody and be the life of the party. Have you thought about that? He disguises himself as an angel of light. He appears to be truthful. And the deceitful thing about Satan is that he can bring, he doesn't have to bring absolute falsehood. He can bring in a little bit of falsehood, or half-truths, or seeds of doubt to make you question. What did he say to What's the first words out of Satan's mouth in Genesis chapter 3? What what did he say to to Eve? What were the first words out of Satan's mouth? Did God really say? Did God really say that? Are you sure he said that? No, he couldn't have said that. That sounds intolerant. That sounds bigoted. That sounds outdated. We've evolved. We need to be a little bit more compassionate and more open-minded. God wouldn't say that in 21st century America. Mm -hmm. Would he? No. See how subtle that is? Okay. So Satan attacks the message. Satan attacks the messenger. And it comes from outside pressure, and it comes internally. But let's look at the third parallel. Antiochus Epiphanes, Is a picture of what we saw last week of the man of sin or the Antichrist who will be the final expression of ultimate evil before the end. He is a picture of the end times Antichrist and what he does. Okay. What does Paul tell us in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 10? We saw this last week. The lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth. The lawless one. Okay. Now, let's finish Daniel here. What are the last two verses. Verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. Okay, he's supposed to seal up the vision, which means it needs to be preserved so that it can be read and be preserved to Scripture. But notice verse 27. How does Daniel respond to all this? And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days, then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Okay. Let's see the three responses from Daniel. This should give us a little bit of encouragement, okay? First response. He was appalled and sickened by what he saw. I think this should be our response as well when we think about the evil in our world. I think it's appropriate for Christians to be appalled and sickened. If we're not, then we've lost some of our moral sensibilities and sensitivity. If you can look at moral evil in the world and be comfortable, it's easy to get jaded and just say, well, that's just kind of the way it is, and it's happening again. And you can become numb to what's happening. But I think at times we need to stop and say, you know what, this evil is appalling. It's making me sick my stomach. When Daniel says I was overcome there, I was overcome. That the word means, it's a strong word in Hebrew. It means he was exhausted. He was finished. I'm kind of come to an end. I'm wiped out. I'm ready to call it quits. Now, we need to be careful here living in the world in which we live you can get to the point where you're like i'm so appalled i want to call it quits jesus come now and get me out of this and you can almost have a defeatist escapist attitude but being appalled should also lead to something else the reality of the end times should lead us to compassion and evangelism and to weeping because what does it mean? Why, why is there so much evil? Who's doing the evil? People. Why are they doing the evil? Because they don't have Jesus. What do they need? They need Jesus. Who has Jesus? You have Jesus. You should be telling them about Jesus. What did Jesus himself do in Matthew 9, 36? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a So yes, we should be appalled. Yes, we should be grieved. But we should also be brokenhearted and should lead us to share the gospel with those that need Christ. So they can escape the wrath to come. Okay, so number one, Daniel was sickened. He was appalled. He was overwhelmed. But number two, Daniel didn't understand the vision. That should give us some help. Okay. Here's the guy that interpreted dreams and saw the handwriting on the wall and was probably one of the wisest men to ever live and, and got to get out of the, the lion's den. And um, there's a lot of things going on here. And Daniel said, I don't have a clue what this is all about. Alright, so that gives you that gives you some help. Okay, I've said this before. Be wary or be cautious of any person who's absolutely dogmatic that they've got everything figured out when it comes to end times. There's too much mystery in the Bible about end times that you can't be... There's some things we absolutely know, but there's some things we don't know. So if somebody says they've got it all figured out and they're dogmatic and they won't budge and they've got all the answers, be very wary. Because Daniel didn't understand what he saw. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret... The secret things, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do the words of this law. Whether we like it or not, there are some things that God has kept a secret. He's revealed to us a lot, and we're responsible for knowing what he's revealed. What he's not revealed, we're not responsible for knowing that. Anything beyond that, speculation and guessing and opinions. And it's okay to say this is my opinion, but don't be dogmatic and say, you know, I'm absolutely right and you're wrong when it comes to things like that. But third, I think this is very interesting and most probably most important. Did you catch it? Daniel went about the king's business. I rose and went about the king's business. He doesn't retreat and worry. And hide. He says, Okay, I'm going to go back to work. I'm going to go back to doing what I was was doing. He didn't retreat from the culture, but returned to living for Christ right where God had placed him. He's still in a pagan society. Does he go live as a monk? No, he's like, I'm part of a pagan society. I'm under a pagan king. This is weird stuff I'm seeing. I have no idea what it is, it's freaking me out, and angels are talking to me, but you know, one thing I can control, I can go back to work. I can go do my job. I can go live for Christ right where he has me, and I'm I'm not gonna retreat, I'm not gonna fear, I'm not gonna hide, I'm just gonna go back and live and do what God has called me to do. So more than ever, it is not a time for Christians to retreat or give up as we see the world worsen. We need more activity. We need more people making a difference, more people involved in the political process, more people making movies, more people in the arts, more people in sports, more people in business, more people in the community, more Christians making an impact. Are things going to get brighter if all the Christians hide out or is the darkness going to get darker? The darkness will get darker if the Christians don't shine brighter. So we shine brighter and you can only control what you can control, but you have a sphere of influence, you have a place God has placed you, you have a place where God has put you. Go about God's business where you are and make an impact where you are and be faithful as you wait for Christ's return. So. The return of Christ should be a strong motivation for us to persevere in obedience as we wait for his return. We should be about the king's business, King Jesus' business. Now, I told you we'd be in 1 Thessalonians. So that's Daniel chapter 8. Let's now turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and let's just see a little bit more tonight, because... We get done really early, so I had to add some extra. <laughs> but it goes with what we're talking about. I want us to go into 1 Thessalonians 5, and I want us to see some teachings from Paul on how we can be prepared in, in, in light of the coming of Christ, the day of the Lord. Okay? So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1-11. through Let me get a drink of water while you guys are all turning there. and. Any questions? Let's just stop. Any questions on Daniel before we go forward with the first test on All right. Confusing, right? This will be a little easier because it's New Testament. All right, here we go. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord... ...will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night... But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, a hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Now, Paul's burden here is not to get into times and dates and divisions and imagery. Paul's got a different burden. Paul's burden here is to encourage them to remain faithful and be ready for the day of the Lord. Okay, so let me just explain. In Paul's theology, he uses two terms that speak about the same event. He calls it the coming of Christ, and he calls it the day, not days, of the Lord. When he's talking about this it's the same event the second coming of Christ is the day of the Lord the day of the Lord is the second coming of Christ but it's from two perspectives the coming of Christ is from the perspective of the Christian for us the coming of Christ is a blessed hope it's our joy the second coming of Christ is not a scary thing for us. It's where Christ is going to take us home. It is the glorious coming of Christ. But in the coming of Christ, it's also the day of the Lord for the, un- the non-Christian. The, the non-Christian. I guess you could be un-Christian. The non-Christian. So, in the same event, when Christ comes back, it is a day of joy for the believer. It is the day of wrath for the unbeliever. It's a day of judgment. So the day of the Lord is the second coming. The second coming is the day of the Lord. It's just the second coming is from the perspective of the Christian. The day of the Lord is from the perspective of the non-Christian. Okay, And so he's talking here about getting ready for the coming. And he says it's going to happen in two ways. He gives two metaphors for this event. The first is like a thief in the night. And the second is like labor pains upon a pregnant woman notice what he says i'm not talking about times and dates and seasons brothers that's not my burden for you i don't need to say anything about that verse 2 you're fully aware that the day of the lord will come like a thief in the night now day of the lord that's an old testament reference you go back i can give you many old testament references but let me just give you one joel 1 15. alas for that day for the day of the Lord is near, and destruction from the Almighty it comes. All throughout the Old Testament, when it talks about the day of the Lord, it's talking about a day of destruction, a day of wrath, a day of judgment. And how's it going to come? Like a thief in the night. Okay. What does that mean? Well, let's listen to what Jesus says. Okay. Matthew 24. 43 through 44. Know this if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Do we know when Jesus is coming back? No. The main thing that Paul and Jesus and Peter and all the New Testament writers tell us is watch and be ready. What does Jesus say right there? Therefore you must be what? Ready. Okay, so that that brings up a huge question. What's the primary way you get ready for the second coming of Christ? You make sure you have Christ as your Lord and Savior. So that when his coming comes, it's the second coming, not the day of the Lord for you, but the coming of Christ. 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, Then the heavens will pass away with roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. So, first metaphor is the day of the Lord, second coming, will come like a thief. Be ready. Second metaphor is that of a pregnant woman. Never been pregnant. I've got, I have to make a confession. I have never been pregnant. I just have to tell you that. Okay. make sure I yeah, never in today's day and age you have to say that okay I am a man and I've never been, so, so but I'm sure many of you ladies in here that have given birth when those labor pains start what does it tell you What is it, what is your body telling you it's getting close to give birth and so you can see some things in the world that would be signs I guess of the end Jesus says in Revelation 16 15 behold I'm coming like a thief blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on he may not go about naked and be seen exposed so Paul here in verses 1 through 3 is warning non-Christians non-Christians you better be ready because the day of the Lord is going to be a day of wrath And it's going to come when you don't expect it. And when it comes, it's going to be too late. Now, how do we know he's talking to Christians in verses 4 through 7? How do you know that? Look at it. How does verse 4 start? But you, but you, you as opposed to who? The others, okay. You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. It's not going to be a day of destruction for you. It's not going to be a day of wrath for you. It's not going to be a scary day for you. Why? What does he say there? Because you are not in darkness. You're children of the light. We are not of the day or of the darkness. So the second thing Paul says here is to Christians, to believers, we should be alert and self-controlled in preparation for Christ's return. We're children of the light. We don't spiritually sleep. We don't spiritually get drunk. There's a key word that shows up there twice. It's the word sober. You see that there? Verse six, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep at night, sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. He uses it twice. Be self-controlled, be pure, be ready, be awake, be watching. Now, is he talking about literal physical drunkenness on, on wine and alcohol here, per se? Is there a way you could be drunk on the ways of the world? Or you can be intoxicated by the world? You've, you've adopted... I'm, I'm jumping out of Wednesday night to Sunday night, okay? So the book of Judges. You can be paganized by the nations around you. You can... Adopt the ways of the culture around you and be so intoxicated by the world that the world consumes you. So the way that you prepare yourself for the second coming is number one, make sure you're a believer, make sure you're saved, but be awake, be sober, be self-controlled. Okay? But then third, we should be constantly reminding ourselves of the gospel. Look at verse 8. Second time he says, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. Now he doesn't give the full armor of God like he does in Ephesians chapter 6. He only gives two pieces, the breastplate and the helmet, but notice that it is related to faith, hope, and love. It's in the gospel. So we put on the armor of God as we wait for Christ's return, and then Paul reminds us of something. What does he say there in verse 9? God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's not destined us for wrath. If you're a believer, you're not destined for wrath. God has predestined you for life. Okay? God in his predestining love has not appointed us to destine us for wrath. Our future is not wrath, but salvation through Jesus for God's people. So if you're a non-believer, What's the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is a day of what? Wrath. If you're a believer, the coming of Christ is a day of what? Salvation. Salvation. And if you're one of his, you're not destined for wrath, you're destined for salvation. You're destined for salvation through Jesus Christ. And then he gives us the gospel there. Look what he says there in verse 10. He died for us. He died for us. So, what is the second coming, or the day of the Lord, for those who have not trusted Christ? It's a day of wrath. Zephaniah 1.15, The day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. So how do you escape the wrath, the judgment, and stand before Jesus on that final day? Well, the answer is in verse 10. Because he died for us. Your ultimate hope is in the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was the sacrificial substitute who shed his blood. And he will take your place, since he took your place on the cross and he died in your place, you will not face judgment on that final day. Now, verse 11, he brings everything to a close here. And what does he say in verse 11? Therefore, encourage one another. And build one another up just as you're doing build one another up. encourage one another one of the greatest things we can do as we wait for the second coming of Christ is to encourage one another and how do we do that specifically we encourage one another in the gospel we remind ourselves that we are saved we are loved we have been chosen by God. Christ has died for us. We're not destined for wrath. He is our Savior. We keep reminding ourselves of the gospel of God's love for us until Jesus comes back. Romans 5, 8 and 9, But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So, we need to constantly be reminding ourselves of the gospel and hopefully it never gets old to hear about Jesus and his love and his cross and his resurrection and that we would be encouraging one another. So here's the bottom line. Don't worry so much about the signs of the times, the headlines, what's happening worldwide. I know, I know it's, it's, you look at that type of stuff and those things are important and you need to be up on world events but they may or may not have anything to do with Christ's return. Chose those words carefully. They may, they may not. What does Paul say there in verse 1? Don't worry so much about times and seasons. Instead, find your hope in the gospel and watch and be ready. Encourage and build one another up. You can look at Facebook and Fox News and YouTube and all the different podcasts and news channels and everything, and you can get so consumed with news and headlines and prophecies, and believe me, I listen to podcasts a lot, and I try to stay up on news, but sometimes if that's all you're consumed with, you can get very anxious and riled up and we need to spend more time in the gospel what can we can you control the end can you control world events can you control the unfolding of prophecy no what's the one thing you can control it's what daniel did we can exhibit lives of faith hope and love as we wait for jesus return We can be ready by encouraging one another in the gospel. We can be prepared by encouraging one another to keep the faith. We can point each other to Jesus. And here's the point as we think about going back to Daniel. We might be confused, as Daniel was. We might be appalled, as Daniel was. We might be under persecution. We might be bombarded with the pain of life. But in all things, we're called to be about the king's business as we bring glory to him. So be about the king's business. Whatever God has called you to do, be about the king's business. Do it faithfully. Do it to the glory of the Lord. Do it in loving God and loving your neighbor until Christ returns and let him sort out how it's all going to end as you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.